Hi, I'm referee Mark Freilich. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the High School Basketball Referee Podcast with Mark Freilich. Today's guest is Tim Gebhardt from Pepper Pike, Ohio. Tim has quite an impressive officiating resume. Uh, he's been a basketball official for 47 years. Uh, he has worked 20, at, at some point in his career, he worked 28 consecutive years of boys regional basketball. He worked nine boys state tournament games. He is currently the basketball official assigner for the Greater Cleveland Conference and the Chagrin Valley Conference. He's a member of the Lake Erie Basketball Association. He's also a member of the Northern Ohio Basketball Officials Association. Probably his biggest honor is that in 2016, he was inducted into the Ohio Basketball Hall of Fame, and we will address that during the interview. This was a great interview. Really enjoyed talking to Tim, and I hope you enjoy it as well. My guest today is an Ohio basketball officiating legend. Hailing from Northeast Ohio, Tim Gebhardt is a Pepper, Pe Pepper Pike, Ohio resident. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you having me. Our audience uh, heard of your accomplishments in your 47-year officiating career, but uh, that 2016 induction into the Hall of Fame really stands out. Uh, you joined 15 other individuals along with the Miami University uh, team from 57, 58, and 59. But boy, you know, there's some legendary names on that list, like uh, former OU coach uh, Larry Hunter, Charlie Huggins. Or, uh, you know, he was at Indian Valley South, from what I remember, back in the 70s. Uh, I went to Ayersville High School in Northwest Ohio, and, and I remember Indian Valley South was number one or number two that year, and they came down to Ayersville to play in 78. Uh, Jerry Sigler's on that list, a former great girls coach at Northview in Sylvania. And Bingo Smith uh, played NBA basketball, but you were the only official on that list. Describe for us the feeling of being inducted into the Ohio High School Basketball Hall of Fame in 2016. Well, it was an unbelievable honor, and it goes back uh, to the original phone call I got from Coach Doc Dockerty, who was one of the founders of the Hall of Fame who was a longtime coach at Euclid High School, who I worked many, many games for and have the utmost respect uh, for him. And to get that phone call from Doc was something I'll never forget. Um, the opportunity to have my family join me that evening um, and for me to be able to thank them to um, allow me to do what I've done and with the basketball officiating was certainly something that I'll never forget. And probably the most memorable um, thing about that evening was the guest speaker was Oscar Robertson. Mm. And growing up in the late 50s and through the 60s, uh, laying in bed, listening to the Cincinnati Royals games on the radio, uh, to be able to meet Oscar Robertson and listen to him speak, that was something I'll never forget. Oh yeah, what a that's a great time there. Talk to us a little bit about your journey into officiating. How did you get into it? Well, I was the youngest of three boys. My two older brothers, one was 11 years older and one was nine years older. And growing up, uh, followed their high school basketball career, went to uh, games in Crawford County uh, when the schools were very, very small, and always had the passion for basketball. Uh, played at Winford 
uh, high school uh, outside Bucyrus, and we had great success um, when I was in high school. Uh, further my education at Muskingum University and played under the legendary Coach Burson. Mm -hmm. And after my four years there, I uh, knew I wanted to stay involved in the game of basketball, um, but was not taking the path of a teacher-coach uh, as a profession. So the logical choice was to stay involved in the game through officiating. And that's the decision I made right out of college. I took the officiating class at Muskingum, got my original state license when I was a sophomore in, in college, but didn't obviously start refereeing until the year after I graduated. But uh, just my love of the game and wanting to be in a packed gym and feel the pressure that I felt while playing directed me towards the officiating end of it. Well, that's great. Uh, those are the best kind of people, I think, to get into officiating because they just for the love of the game. And I, you know, I had mentioned in my bio that whenever you step on that basketball floor, to continue to have that feeling um, that ne really never leaves once you love the game, um, that's a great feeling to always step on the floor, pack crowd, non-pack crowd, no matter what. It's just a great feeling. Absolutely, and it's uh, that theory of competing the feeling of competing only when you officiate you kind of compete against yourself as opposed to an opponent uh, but there's still that that feeling of competition uh, once you acquire the taste for that you never lose it yeah well we're going to take you through a basketball game here um you know we were talking a little bit uh, prior to the game so we're going to head head you give you some questions on the pregame we're going to go through the first quarter, second quarter, take a break at halftime, and go through the second half as well with questions. So uh, fasten your seat belts. Here we go. Do you, do you remember your first game officiating? I, I do. I started out working men's leagues uh, probably the summer before I actually started working high school basketball. Um, but I do remember – uh, it was a boys JV game and you know just the fear of not putting your hand up or blowing the whistle or whatever uh, being in my mind but got through it and and kind of kind of uh, expanded upon that so uh, those are fond memories they were a long time ago but uh, <laughs> I, I still remember them did you have you had the pee whistle back then didn't you Yes, the metal P whistle right. with the uh, ruffled bottom referee shoes. <laughs> how about your first game, varsity game? Do you remember that? Uh, and how many how many years was it, if you remember, how many years was it between your first game and your first varsity game? Well, it happened pretty quickly. Huh? Uh, I actually worked a, a, a rec league game with a, a, a gentleman um, that had a connection in the old Portage County League, and he made a recommendation to the supervisor when he needed a partner at the last minute, and I think it was in my the end of my second year. Uh, I, I'm not even sure I had an R, R, R rating at that time, but he needed somebody to, to fill in, and I went down to the Portage County League and worked the game at Streetsboro High School. I'll never forget that. Uh, got through it somewhat unscathed, so just <laughs> continue to roll from there. Do you remember uh, who has been maybe some of the more influential officials um, and maybe some of the people who weren't officials, but uh, some of the most influential people in your officiating career? 
And, and well, grow, growing up in Bucyrus, uh, Mac Morrison, mm-hmm. who everyone knows in the Northwest District, um, lived in Bucyrus. I had a very good relationship with Mac because uh, his son Larry was one of my best friends growing up. So when he found out that uh, I was uh, pursuing the officiating, at that time he was a supervisor of the Northern Ohio League, which uh, in the late 70s through the 80s into the early 90s uh, was probably one of the best high school leagues in the state as far as uh, fan support, uh, level of coaching, level of play. And he, uh, even though a lot of those trips were well over two, two and a half hours, he assigned me games down there, and and uh, uh, that's where I got my start, uh, and then expanded upon it more in the Northeast after I worked uh, several games down there. And then uh, two other people that had a big influence on my thought process, on my career, uh, was the late Tom Tuig, uh, oh, yeah. who was a, an assigner here in Northeastern Ohio, who I worked many games with. Um, and then when he assigned, uh, came to observe a lot and gave me a lot of pointers. And probably the other one, even though it was on the college side, was Diane Place. I worked uh, women's college for quite a few years, and uh, her insight and whatnot into the general game of basketball was a gigantic help to me. Yeah, well, that, uh, yeah, that's a good list to have. As you look at your career, look back at your career, I know you've had many memorable games, but is is there maybe one or two that really stick out? Probably the most memorable game uh, that I had was a, a state championship game uh, uh, between uh, uh, Kettering Alder and Philo. Uh, it came down to uh, Philo had a three-point lead. Kettering Alder had the ball and came down and took like three or four shots and missed. The last miss rebounded long out to the three-point line and one of their guards picked it up and stepped into a shot and his foot was right close to the three-point line Mm -hmm. and it went up and I said to myself God please don't let this shot go in (laughs) and sure enough it banked in and looking at the replay I went up the three-point signal right away um but there was a, a, a moment of doubt that his toe was that close. And uh, that game put the, that shot put the game into overtime. Kettering Alder, of course, won in overtime. Always the team that hits that shot wins in overtime. <laughs> and I'll never forget coming in the locker room. Um, I worked that game, in fact, with Tom Tuig and, and Bill Eck. And uh, I really appreciate Bill Eck saying to Hank Zaborniak, who was the head of super, uh, supervisor of officials in the, for the state at that time, right. he said, he said, Hank, before we leave this locker room, we need to know if that was a three-pointer or a two-pointer. Well, Hank left the locker room, probably was gone for about 15 minutes, but it seemed like an hour and a half. <laughs> and he came back in, he says, guys, he says, we've looked at it from every angle possible. He said, if Tim would have called it a two-pointer, we have nothing to say if it wasn't a two-pointer. But the fact that he called it a three-pointer, we have nothing 
you know, to prove that it wasn't a three-pointer. That that toe was that close to the line. About two weeks later, there was a note in Columbus Dispatch that said, you know, they've looked at it, magnified it, did everything they possibly could, and in fact, it was a three-pointer. So I was able to sleep a little better both that night and, and several weeks after that. Isn't it amazing how games like that affect your mentality for not just that night, but for weeks, uh, weeks ahead? Oh, without a doubt. You know, one thing, thing I tell young officials, uh, I throw a number out of the games that I've refereed over my career. And I always say, you know, there isn't a game that doesn't go by that I don't tell myself, you know, if that situation happens again, I might handle it a little bit differently. So the time you quit learning, uh, from your experiences and learning from other people is the day you better get out of the game. Yeah. So uh, those situations, and I tell people, I said, you know, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games I've, I've worked, I've never had another controversial two to three point shot. <laughs> but in the state tournament, you know, in, in front of that many thousand people, that one instance and that one second, that, that, that was a, a defining moment. Yeah. Yeah. That makes your summer a little bit uh, longer sometimes if you don't, especially if you wouldn't have heard anything for the, for the entire summer, that would have made you a very, very long summer. That's for sure. But there's some great advice there for, for the young people as well uh, about making sure that you continue to learn throughout, throughout every game. And that's a, a big key. And we'll get into that in a little bit. That's a great segue. We just finished our little pregame, and now let's get into the first quarter and, and talk a little bit about coaches. Um, and we don't we don't have to name names if you don't want. If you do, that's fine. But what has been some of the most beneficial tactics that that have worked for you in dealing with coaches? Well, my advice and, and the thing that I truly believe in a hundred percent is I have massive respect for anybody that is coaching as a profession. Um, you know, I respect the time they put in, how seriously they take it, um, how the benefits and whatnot they give to their players and the kids playing for them. So when you go into a game, I, you know, and you have the, the respect when you start the game, uh, then you, you can deal with things a little bit differently than if you don't have the respect for the, for the time and effort that they put into into, into their job. Um, John Whitson, a good friend of mine, a Columbus official, uh, had a great thing about how to deal with coaches and, and whatnot, and he always said, answer questions, ignore statements, and penalize insanity. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a great thing to have. And when our pregame, when we have a pregame and, and, and whatnot, we always say, let's be approachable. You know, let's not run, run away from a coach who's being respectful to us and asking a legitimate question. Now, you don't want questions every time down the floor, but if they have a legitimate question, let's, let's give them the time, if it's during a dead ball, and answer their question, acknowledge the fact that they have a very strong interest in the game and, uh, and show them that respect. And again, that, that goes to the crew being consistent. You know, if all three people on the crew, uh, will show the coach that respect, 
um, then you don't get into the good, good, good cop, bad cop type situation that, that can hurt some crews. Sure. Sure. How about dealing with an upset coach? How do you, how do you do that uh, effectively? Uh, try to bring them down. Uh, I'm a firm believer that, that we as officials have to have an inverse uh, reaction uh, to what's going on in the game. As the game gets heated and more heated, uh, we have to bring our level down to the lowest possible place. If we've got a game that has no intensity, uh, then we need to bring it up and, and, and be more involved in the game. But again, uh, talking to a coach, uh, giving him an opportunity to have his say, you know, showing him that we've listened to what he had, had to say, uh, that we acknowledge uh, that he has a point of view, and then, you know, eventually that stop sign signal, you know, yep. when he made it, and, and one of my favorite lines is, Coach, you've made your point. You've made your point. Now that's enough. Let's go on to the next play. And and usually you can talk them down. Uh, you know, if they if they if you can't, and you know, a technical foul is only another part of the game. It's no different than calling a travel. You know, it, it it's something that'll either make the game better or worse. And what I found out, if you don't give a technical foul when it's warranted, that's going to make the game worse. Yeah, great point. Any specific encounters with a coach that might help bring some value to the audience that's listening? Well, my favorite referee story in all the years I've been refereeing, and I've told this a lot of times, so a lot of listeners have probably heard it, (laughs) but this was a district final game. Uh, It was at Lakeland Community College. It was uh, Chanel High School, which is now no longer there, uh, and playing VA St. Joe uh, for the district championship. Uh, both teams was 21-1. and one. The only games they lost were to each other because they were in the same league. So I won't mention his name, but Chanel had a very fiery coach. He, he was a, he was a, a great coach. Um, coach with the kids great thing he he didn't know how to handle himself very well with the referees he had had a reputation um but anyway chanel comes out this game in the first half and does everything right they can't miss a shot everything's gone they have a 20 point lead at halftime well the second half as so often happens things completely change the shots they were making aren't going in they're turning the ball over end of the third quarter the lead's down to eight points so he says tim tim i gotta talk to you (laughs) i walk over and i said yeah coach what do you want he says this is unbelievable unbelievable they're behind they're pressing and the team fouls are seven to one seven to one how could that be (laughs) i said coach they have seven you have one (laughs) He goes, oh, okay. <laughs> so that made me realize, you know, to, to, to take a step back when a coach does react to something, that he is seeing things through glasses only going one direction. So I use that as, a, as kind of a learning tool to know that, okay, he's 
emotionally involved in the game and he might not be seeing everything the way it actually is. So let's give him a chance to calm down and get his head back in the game. So. Right. It's that, yeah, it's that calming effect that we need um, on, on the floor that that's really critical for, for that instance sometimes. And, you know, that's another question that somebody had posed um, a younger official. So I'm going to pose it to you. How do you maintain that professionalism, even when coaches are in your face? Uh, it's very hard to do, especially uh, everyone has their own personality. And, and my personality, luckily for the officiating uh, avocation, is very low-key. It, it takes a lot to get me upset uh, and kind of take things as they come. But I know I've had several friends uh, that I respect greatly as officials that they, you know, had a temper too and would respond you know back uh when a coach uh showed their temper so i i guess nobody can use the same set of rules you have to use what what works for you um but again always better uh to take a step back when you got that first inclination to fire back and to to meet aggression with aggression to say okay this is a rough spot in the game rough spot in this relationship what's the best way to get through this and and, and come out unscathed on the other side um, one of my philosophies and always tell the crew before a game I say say you know let's do what we have to do during this game to keep ourselves out of trouble and if that is calling seven technical fouls for that particular game might be the best way to keep us out of trouble. If it's taking a step back and, and maybe uh, being a little more passive than it normally would be, uh, that might be the approach that gets us through that game the best way possible. So every situation is different, and, and I'd, I'd advise younger officials to uh, look at the situation um, and, and be yourself. Uh, and and develop uh, with experience your way your best way of of handling confrontation or these bad spots that can happen in games yeah that goes along with what you talked about earlier about uh continuing to learn um from uh, from each game and each year that that we're working um who are uh, when you have a game uh you've got a coach who's uh, maybe constantly questioning your calls on one side, the other coach is maybe quiet and chill. Um, when you're in the same game like that, uh, how do you how do you deal with the coaches? Uh, how how different they are. Well, I think I think the verbal end of it, uh, you can you can certainly live with, you know, a coach verbally that is more aggressive than the other coach. But if you have a coach that is you know, going over the line as far as bench decorum, mm-hmm. as far as, um, you know, out of the box, waving his arms, uh, doing that types of things, uh, then you really need to be aggressive as far as, you know, getting him under control or, or penalizing him. Um, I always tell people that I'm working with that I think the weakest part of my game is noticing what's going on in the bench area. Um, I've always thought that it was 
it was more important to, to monitor the 10 players on the floor. I know that's that's wrong. I know bench decorum is a very important part of the game, and I've tried to take myself the last five years and be more uh, cognizant of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, uh, I'm a firm believer in selective hearing. If, if I'm two feet from the coach and he's – says something that I can that I can act like I don't hear it or um, you know uh, just just kind of get it under control with a with a quick answer um, that's the way I'd rather handle it than you know just wheeling on somebody and teeing them up when nobody else in the gym knows what it's about um, so you know again everybody has their own personality and everybody yep. handles that those situations differently yep true very true who are some of maybe some of the maybe uh more memorable coaches that that you've dealt with before and, and what made them uh, memorable well the early in my career uh mentioned going down to the northern ohio league um bob haas at willard mm-hmm. who had unbelievable success at sure willard is. high school uh, was just a super class individual who competed as kids competed. Um, but he, I think he had the respect of all officials and, and in turn he showed officials respect. I mean, he, he would harp it uh, when he thought the call wasn't right, but he'd forget about it, go back to coaching and let it die. And, and he set the bar pretty high, you know, as, as far as somebody, that I loved to work for early in my career. Um, Bob, up in our Northeastern Ohio, Bob Krasancic at Mentor, uh, very fiery, very, uh, he'll let you know what he thinks. But again, uh, I think he respects the officials, especially people he've had, he's had over years. He will certainly test young officials. But uh, again, somebody that, that has an outstanding knowledge of the game and an outstanding knowledge of how to coach the game. And those are the people that I uh, always respected. And but like I said earlier, I respect all coaches, but those were the people. And, and the one thing we find out as far as officiating that the kids that play on a team are a direct reflection of their coach. Uh, and if you've got a coach that's whining all the time and it's always somebody else's fault and they never get a break no, that's that's the way their kids play and the, the attitude that the kids take on the floor. So, um, you know, those are the two that come to mind as as just great students of the game, great teachers of the game, and great coaches to work the game for. Yeah, and it's always good to have those veteran coaches. Uh, really, the the communication that we have with the coaches, um, it, it's nice to when you officiate with a veteran official to have that communication or a veteran coach. It's nice to have that communication with the coach as well. And I know that um, in in my career uh, of 22 years, I've had instances where coaches have said something to me, and I actually learned from it. Uh, Paul Wayne, for instance, a legendary coach at Holgate, now at Tenora, um, you know, on the sidelines, I, he had said something to me about rewarding, uh, rewarding the defense, and uh, that what what happened on that play really. Uh, once I think about it, it was a great learning experience. I think I had only been officiating maybe about four or five years. In your career, maybe what is the best advice you ever received from a coach during the game? 
Um, I, you know, I would, I would say, you know, getting back to the bench decorum is pay more attention to what's going on the floor and pay less attention to me. Yeah. Uh, uh, suggestion and 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 there's a lot of truth to that unless um, you know they're making a mockery of the game and and we know as veteran officials when we get observed uh, by people from the state of Ohio or or district uh, board members you know one of the first things they're looking at is what's the bench decorum are you as an official taking care of that and you know I've told I've told coaches. Uh, during the tournament time, I said, "Hey, we all have to be on our best behavior. You know, we're we're all getting looked at, and and not only us as officials, but you as a coach are being being looked at very closely." I said, "I would recommend getting yourself under control." Great points, great points. So that that puts an end to our first quarter in dealing with coaches. We'll head to the second quarter right now, and just a couple of questions. Uh, but I think they're important questions for other officials to uh, to hear you answer these, and, and it's about the players uh, and and communication with the players. So, what can you say about working with the players? What's helped you the most in dealing with players on the floor? Well, I th- I think uh, just kind of putting yourself in their place. Um, if you have uh, a player that. Um, and you can tell who the real good players are, if even if you've never seen that team play before, usually within the first quarter or something. And you can usually tell who the leaders of that particular team is. Team is. It might not be the best player. Um, and those are the players you want to communicate with and you want to get on your side. So I, I, would, I would say, you know, if you see somebody's temper going up, if you can get to them and just, you know, say that couple quick things like hey we got a great game going on don't let your temper ruin it or you're too good a player to 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 do that um you know those are little little one-liners but you got to be very careful about what you say to a player because it's going to go right back to the coach and you never know how they're going to take it even though it was meant as a as a helping comment it could be misconstrued and all of a sudden you're you're getting fried and the athletic director's calling the supervisor and all of a sudden for something that was very innocent you're in trouble so i'm kind of a firm believer in you know silence can't be quoted so as far as uh the control or whatever of players um i've even had coach you know tell me don't talk to his players when I'm telling him to get to tell him to get out of the key or keep your hands off on a dribbler or anything like that you know I've had a coach say don't talk to my players wow. and I'll say okay coach absolutely I'm just going to call the fouls yeah. so um, those are other things I think officials need to be very careful of yeah and you know that kind of leads into the next question that I had prepared here is that you know there's there's common times when we use proactive officiating uh, using our voices, you know, like like we had mentioned, or like you had mentioned, getting out of the lane, or uh, maybe in the post with the post action down there. But uh, are there any other plays that maybe stand out when you're using your voice a lot, and uh, that that it's effective for you? I would I would say that you know the hand check, uh, you know when when 
somebody early in the game uh, puts their hand on somebody, you know, and it's and it's um, not a hold or a misdirection or something uh, that you can you can say get your hands off. But again, that's probably only one time during the course of a game that that you tell a player that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that you know the game is much easier to officiate in a much better game if the guards have freedom of movement and get the ball up and down the floor without being held, bumped, and grind up and down the floor. So being an old point guard myself, I, <laughs> I try to protect those ball handlers and point guards. So uh, and it's always good, you know, not to have the first hand check called midway through the fourth quarter in a tie game. Yeah. You'd like to set the, the precedence early. And, and and not let it go, and then call one in the middle of the fourth quarter. So, those those are things. And again, same thing. If you've got a, a offensive post player that's backing the defense down, you know you can talk to them early in the game. Uh, but if you're going to get a, a trend setting call, it's better to get it early in the game than midway through the fourth quarter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that fourth quarter foul that you haven't called in the first three quarters will really not only get the coaches' uh, attention, but uh, the fans as well. So, uh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, it's it's halftime now, so let's take a quick break, and when we get back, uh, we'll head to the third and fourth quarters. So we'll be right back. Hi, I'm referee Mark Fralick. If you would like to advertise in this space, please contact me by sending me an email at markfralick at hotmail.com. As we return from halftime, uh, a quick discussion on equipment. Um, talk about maybe some of the equipment that you like best, whether it's a whistle, whether it's a, uh, whether it's a whistle, whether it's a shoe, uh, maybe just uh, some kind of equipment that uh, you think has been good for you over the years. Well, I mentioned earlier about started out with the uh, uh, ripple sold uh, shoes and, and obviously shoes have come a long way since those days. Uh, I think I still got a pair of those in my cupboard and you pick them up and you can't hardly lift them. And now everybody comes out with the lightest, you know, and best shoe. I've never been one. I, I, I'm, I'm one that gets a, a pair of shoes and, and historically they were new balance shoes and get like a season and a half out of them, try to get two shoot, two pairs of shoes and rotate them. But, uh, I certainly get good use out of them. Um, you know, as we got older, uh, I can remember being 35 and working with veteran guys who, who put the liniment on and and the uh, the knee braces and everything and saying, boy, when I get to that point, I'm not going to be working anymore. And now I'm the one doing all that and making sure I take my Advil at the right time of day. So uh, the inflammation's at the low point during the game. So uh as we get older, you know, we, we, we need some aids, as they say. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's funny because I had that conversation this year uh, with the guy that I work with quite a bit. And I said, you know, back when I was in my, my 30s, uh, I was officiating a game at Sandusky High School. And Mark Linton was one of the officials. And he was doing all of that stuff. And I said, man, if I ever get to that point, I am getting out of it. And here I am with the knee braces, the tights, and the capsation on the knees and, and everything like that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I'm feeling your pain. <laughs> so, yeah, so let's head to the third quarter. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about officials. And um, so in communication with fellow officials, uh, what can they do 
to improve crew dynamics or cohesiveness? When I go speak uh, to a beginning referee class um, or when I'm instructing at a camp that we have, you know, first, second, third year officials, I always say the first thing you need to do before you walk out on the court or if you're meeting your, your partner at, at midcourt and before the start of the game, make sure you know what their first name is. And I think that's, that's the first step to being a good partner. If your partner makes a, a good call and you can say, Bill, that's a great call, way to be on it. Or uh, if you have a play that you need to get together on, you can say, Bill, what, what exactly did you see? Let's not mess this rule up. Let's, let's walk this play through so we get the rule right. So I always tell, you know, real young officials, make sure you know your partner's first name. And I think that's a great step. Mm -hmm. The next step when you get to be more veteran is you have to have the concept in your mind that we live and die as a crew. Um, you know, we're, we sometimes get assigned with people that we don't have the most confidence in. Uh, we know that uh, their confidence level might not be the best, that you might have to expand your primary a little bit might have to, to be a little more um, responsive as, as far as handling the coaches. But you have to keep in your mind that, that you're going to be judged that night on how the crew does. And uh, to separate yourself and, and put yourself on an island separate from your partners is not going to do you any good or certainly your partners any good or the game any good that night. So those are, those are two things that I really believe in that uh, – um, you know, you got to live and die as a crew. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So advice for any young officials that might be coming up uh, from the lower level to the varsity, what's, uh, what, what are some of your best advice that you have? Well, I think the major learning thing, not only from a learning point of view, but also as your reputation as a young official is because up in our area, and I don't know how it is in your area, Mark, but we have very few JV officials that stay uh, for much of the varsity game. Uh, and, and to me, that is defeating the purpose of, um, you know, growing through experience and asking questions and seeing how things are done. So my first recommendation to a younger official was, and we all know that people have family obligations and whatnot, uh, but it shouldn't be every Tuesday and Friday night that you have to leave as soon as your JV game's over. Um, so that would be my first recommendation is show the interest uh, to pick the varsity officials' brains and uh, and stay and at least through halftime so you can ask questions at halftime. Um, up in our area, those people separate themselves very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, the word gets out. Um, myself being a supervisor, I've had – I've, I don't know, 50 calls the next day after a game from the varsity officials saying, hey, I got there, I saw the JV game, this guy's going to re be really good, plus he stayed and asked questions, and those guys go right to the top of my list as far as a supervisor's concerned. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I know back when 
when I was working JV, and, and really that wasn't, um, you know, when you're in it 22 years, uh, but working back in JV doesn't seem that long ago. But I know when I first started, I would stick around till halftime. And just to pick the officials' brains and just to even listen to their conversation uh, at times uh, was so valuable in learning the game. And uh, not, not just learning the game, but learning how to referee the game. Um, and so I, that, I, yeah, I can't say how critical that is for the JVs, especially at this time. And, and the same thing with, you know, up here, I'm as the assigner of a league up here, I, I get the same thing. I get phone calls from guys who say, hey, this guy's coming up and, and he looks good. So it, it, word gets around. Word gets around very fast. You know, uh, a similar question, and we talk about the quick movers uh, a lot. And what advice would you have for a young official um, through those first five years of their career, you know, we want them to move up the ladder, but at the same time, if they move up too quickly, um, yeah, that could be detrimental to their career as well. So some tend to move up faster than others, which causes frustration from some of the other, you know, younger officials. So what kind of advice for the first five years would you give an official? First, the thing would be, be patient. Um, uh, you know, I hate to talk about the old days, but, uh, you know, I, I started working varsity games very early, but they were in the Portage County League, uh, in the NOL, um, and in the Northeast Conference, which were all hour and a half to two hour drives. It, it took me six, seven, eight years of working JV ball in, Cle in the Cleveland area, um, you know, the Greater Cleveland Conference, the Lake Erie League. Um, people now, you know, go get their T to R license. And the first thing they, they think is now they're a varsity official. Well, that's not the case. Uh, I rely on seeing people, uh, first of all, uh, second of all, the respect I have for probably 25 varsity officials that work, work for me with their feedback on JV officials or even a, uh, less experienced partner that they might have had in game. I, I will pick their brain on, do you think they move too fast? Or, you know, where do you, where do you put them at right now? Do they need more seasoning? Um, and I think, I think the main, main problem is people that might not have the look or didn't get the break or whatever, get frustrated when somebody that may have, may have taken the same class as they did is moving a little faster than they are. Um, and they, you know, it ruins the fun of refereeing for them when they're not moving as quickly as they should. Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer in enjoy the moment. Uh, you know, if you're going to go work a freshman JV double, a double header, and it might be two of the best programs in your area, well, that's going to be more fun and more of a challenge than going to work a varsity game for, um, you know, a lesser league or lesser teams. So enjoy the moment and try to get better every game. And if you do what you're supposed to do, good things will happen if you've got the talent. I, I mentioned Tom Tuig earlier as one of, one, of, um, one of the influences of my career. He always talked about the gift, the gift of refereeing. You know, you might not have ever played a game. You might not look like much. You didn't have the athletic build or, or run like the wind. But 
if you had the gift, you were going to be successful as a referee. Yeah, that's that's a that's good. Uh, you know, when you you probably wonder when he said that what the gift actually is, but um, I think after you've been in the in officiating after uh, X amount of years, you can kind of look back and see certain officials have that certain gift. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you know, I always said or still say to this day, I can watch somebody refereeing a two person game for about ten minutes, and I can tell if they if they can referee you know people can referee five years and three people three person games and you still don't know if they can refer really referee or not right okay that puts to bed our third quarter so let's head to the final fourth quarter we talk a little about about a little bit about in-game and out-of-game situations so uh if you could go back and give yourself some advice as a young as a young official what would it be um You know, treat treat every night as the biggest game there is. Uh, you know, you always hear about you know that's the biggest game for the coaches and the players and for the fans are at that game. As an official, that's the way we have to look at it. That that game that particular night, no matter what level it is, is the most important game for a lot of people involved in that. It should be for the officials. Um, I always I always say that the first thing people notice about officials are, do you want to be there? You know, do you, do you, your body language and your facial expressions and how you deal with game managers and things along that line with the scoring personnel at the score table, do you give everybody the impression that you want to be there? Because if, if you, if you don't, if you give that off as a, as an impression, people are going to see that immediately. And all of a sudden, it's not going to be an enjoyable night for you. Right. So that that's the first advice I have. And then, um, you know, being being an assigner and and you know the only complaints I get, I don't get complaints about hey the, he he didn't call Black George right or he didn't he didn't uh, uh, know what a travel was. It's always about how they dealt with the athletic director, how they dealt with the kid that took them to their locker room. Um, what they said to the scoring table, those are the complaints I get. So, you know, my other piece of advice would be treat everybody, you know, like they're a major part of the game. And if you treat them with respect, they'll treat you with respect. Amen to that. That's, uh, yep, no doubt about it. Um, What kind of habits do you use on the court that keep you calm, especially during like tense situations? Do you... Do you have something that you do mentally or, or through years of experience? Have you learned uh, that something helps you remain calm during tense situations? Um, talking to myself, you know, running things through the mind, through my mind. Okay, uh, we got a two-point game with three minutes to go. You know, let's, let's, let's high certainty. Let's only make high certain calls. Um, you know, uh, Okay, team fouls are six to one. Let's not miss one against the team that has one. Uh, you know, the game situations. Okay, this team is down three, uh, has the ball. They might shoot a three-pointer. Uh, if they shoot a two and score, we got to be alert for the timeout. Or they're gonna they're gonna foul. They're gonna go for the steal right away. Then they're gonna foul. Um, anticipate 
the play, don't anticipate the call, all those things that you can self-talk. And if you get the chance to share those thoughts with your crewmates, I think it makes everybody stay on top of their toes and, and uh, be involved in the game and and uh, avoid those screw-ups that uh, can cost you at the end of the game. If, if, it, if the game is nondescript, you know, there isn't really much going on, um, self-talk to keep yourself alert, um, keep yourself involved in the game, um, you know, don't get too lax, um, all those things, you know, just, just kind of kind of talk to yourself and run yourself through all the situations during the game. When you look at officiating, um, what do you gain from it professionally? Uh, and even if it's in your personal life, what kind of things do you gain from just being a, a basketball official? The number one trait that basketball officials need is to be punctual. Uh, you know, my wife kids me that, you know, 15 minutes early is five minutes late for me. Uh, <laughs> you know, when we're going to someplace for a party or dinner, it's always you know, we're going to be the first one there. We don't always have to be the first one there, but that that's something that comes with, with officiating. Um, my profession was, was sales, a small industrial distribution business. So the dealing with people, uh, um, the interaction, um, and officiating, I don't necessarily think you got to make people like you, but you got to make people respect you. So, you know, that carried over into my business um, because I think people respected the efforts I was putting in to serve them. Um, so, yes, those things definitely transfer into into your personal life. So 47 years uh, in officiating, have you ever had anything uh, scary happen on the court or maybe off the, co- off the court with maybe a fan or a coach or a player interaction? Well, in 47 years, I've had two all-out bench crawling brawls oh wow the first one uh was and i don't remember the year it was uh va st joe at san ignatius um it was two person two person game Uh, the people that were playing in that game were elvis gerback and uh i think there were five professional either football or basketball players playing in the game uh, but we had a situation where uh, there was an elbow. I still say it was inadvertent. Other people say it was intentional, thrown. As the two players went down the floor, uh, they squared off and threw punches, and all hell broke loose, and the, the stands emptied, and it was not a pleasant situation. Um and the other one happened to be in a women's college game at uh, OU in Eastern Michigan when a timeout was called and the players were crossing. And this was three minutes into the game, and two players took exception and squared off and and threw punches at each other, and and the benches emptied. Uh, so those are scary, you know. Those those never have I felt in danger. In, in a basketball game or leaving a basketball game, but it just those those go to show that how quickly uh, the powder cake can erupt and how vigilant we have to do have to be with dead ball officiating and and 
trying to keep situations like that from arising. Yeah, you know, even when something like that happens in a game, and we talked earlier about the mentality of the of of yourself after a game like that and how much that affects you. I imagine after the, especially the high school game, uh, something like that. Thank goodness you probably had a game after that, but that whole night you probably didn't sleep well, did you? Oh no, not at all, yeah. not at all. And the funny thing about that was, you know, now there's so many games on TV, but back then, up in our area, there was only the public TV station did one game about six Friday nights during the year. And those were the only games that were on TV. And that obviously was on TV. They always showed it on tape delay. So we had a local meeting spot where everybody went on Friday nights. So my partner and I, the late Jimmy D'Amato, who I love dearly and miss him terribly, uh, went to the bar afterwards and the game's on. (laughs) the TV and people are watching it and said, Oh, it looks like a hell of a game. These two teams can really play. I said, well, stay tuned. You're, you're going to miss something <laughs> exciting. So, you know, those things, uh, come back and you can laugh about them. Now you can't laugh about them then. Yeah. You know, you, you touched on, uh, going out post game afterwards and that's where we're headed. Now we ended the fourth quarter and we're headed to our post game. And, you know, some of the best parts of officiating is that brotherhood. And you, you hit on that just a little bit, bit ago with your, with your friend and then also with going to the bar after the game. But, you know, the drive to the game, the post game, uh, wherever we go after the game, and then the drive home, that can be some of the favorite parts of officiating, just being together and, and, and talking. And it doesn't have to even be about basketball officiating. Would you agree about that? And any good stories that, that you can tell, <laughs> still tell anyways? <laughs> well, well, I mentioned about going down to the NOL, and, and those were some legendary road trips uh, because uh, – Mag Morrison always assigned me with somebody from the Cleveland area and we got the ride together and, you know, it was usually on a Friday night and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd leave at three 30 and meet up and leave at three 30 and make the two hour drive to Willard or Shelby or Norwalk or wherever we happened to be going. And, uh, you know, we'd get there, uh, and people were lined up, you know, waiting to get into the JV game and you know just the anticipation as we drove down and 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 look forward to, it was like we were going to play in the game ourselves that yeah. that was the anticipation we had and then you know you're, you're out there and and you put your heart and soul into work in the game and and luckily most of them you know came out where the right team won and we had no effect on the game and then you know the drive home was just the capper on the evening you just we just got to reminisce about that particular game and uh i get together with some of those people now and those old stories you know uh they're still make us laugh and smile so yeah those those situations uh are unforgettable that that like you say that's probably the best part of the game yeah right well, that's great. Uh, I want to thank Tim for taking the time out of his schedule today to be part of the High School Basketball Referee Podcast. Uh, Tim, you've just been a great interview. Thanks very much for being a part of this. Mark, I appreciate the thought of having me, and uh, good luck with this uh, uh, situation, and uh, you're doing a great service to high school basketball. Thank you very much.
Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you were able to take something away from this show that helps your officiating career. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the High School Basketball Referee Podcast with Mark Fralick, you can listen on Spotify or Apple or Google Podcasts, along with several other podcast platforms. Please review, rate, and subscribe. And if you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can do so at anchor.fm backslash mark-fralick. That's mark dash, and then it's F-R-O-E-L-I-C-H. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.